Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. And welcome to another pulse-pounding episode of Cinelit. Today we are casting our eyes back in the second of our series looking at Hammer Horror. Previously we've tackled the run of Frankenstein films, and today we sink our fangs into the Dracula series. Joining me on today's podcast are my fellow creatures of the night, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm good, thanks, Adam. Just back from a horror film festival, actually, so uh, all raring to go on this and all, uh, all vampired up at the moment. <laughs> and we're also joined again by Hammer Experts and the main force behind the Encyclopedia of Fantastic Film and Television, Kevin Lyons. How are you, Kevin? I'm very well, thank you. Very much looking forward to this one. Okay, well, let's, let's jump straight in then. Um, There's a series of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten films. Is that right? Have I miscounted there? Yeah, de- depending on which ones you include and yes. which you don't, really. Yep. Yes, yeah. Yeah, Hammer made a lot of films with the word Dracula in the title and nothing to do yeah. with, with the Dracula series. So, in the title, but rarely in the film, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I've only included one in, in today's list. I mean, I haven't included Countess Dracula, yeah. but I have included The Brides of Dracula. So we will be looking, so we're, we're looking at some of those sidebars, but not all of them. Uh, I think if we did all of them, we'd be here all week. So uh, let's, let's try and streamline it a little bit. So we're going to look at, first off, let's look at the first film, Dracula, 1958. Um, the first film, but in sense, a follow-up to the massive success of The Curse of Frankenstein in 1957. Uh, really, that two-shot film hit established Hammer on the world stage as a force to be reckoned with. And um, yeah, and here we are with this one where... Colour brings the claret to life, I guess. There's, <laughs> there's nothing more um, evocative in this film than the the, the, the scenes of blood being uh, being spilled. Indeed, it's one of the first things we see, isn't it, on the title sequence. The title sequence is Dracula's name on the coffin and the spattering of Kensington gore. So they set out their stall very early, right at the very... You're in no, under no illusion about what this film's going to be once it started. Was this the, was this the first colour, Dracula? I think he was, yes. yes. I, I think so. I can't yeah. think of an earlier one. Good question. Well, you know, it's the first one for an expert beyond our skills, but yeah, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I, I know. It is. It it's, a, it's certainly the first one to show Dracula sporting fangs. He'd never worn them before in film, so this was 
this was this was the first time we saw that. So this is where the sort of the real image. I know you know I can I can feel the Bela Lugosi fans bristling from here, but for me this is where the real sort of image of Dracula comes from. When I think of Dracula, I think of Christopher Lee and the cape and the fangs and the you know that that's that's the image in my mind rather than Lugosi. He was great, but you know. This is this is where it all starts for me. There's, there's a there's a dynamism to this role rather than like Lagos's much more theatrical stage kind of presence. Yeah. I think that stems a lot from from the script. The whole movie and all of the characters are sort of dynamic. Lee Lee is is fantastic and and really sort of feral in this, but uh, um, but also aristocratic and and uh, sophisticated as well. He really gets that balance. Um, I think a lot of the film's dynamism comes from the script, and I, I I'm not sure if it was Richard Matheson who said this some years later when he he was called upon to write a a version of Dracula in the seventies. It may have been Mathis and it may be someone else. Uh, Kevin, you, you you might know this, but uh, there's, there was a quote talking about um, doing an authentic um, version of Bram Stoker's novel. And whoever it was that said it said, well, you, you can't because it would be basically a, a, a six hour film of people writing letters and putting entries in their diary, you know, because the, the novel is all um, sort of letters and notes and and and. Um, uh, and uh, sort of diary entries and so on. Now, what happens here is we've got Jimmy Sangster who sort of throws the book away, takes the absolute bare bones of it, and just makes it in, into this fabulous sort of confrontation come chase movie. And um, uh, we, we did a podcast on Mad Max recently, and this this is like the Mad Max of, of, <laughs> of, of the, the, you know, it's the Mad Max approach to Bram Stoker. It's, it's- it's beautifully streamlined, isn't it? The script. I mean, he all that toing and froing backwards and forwards between Whitby and the continent, all that's gone. He just sets it all in the one location. There's one bride, which okay, that would have been you know budgetary restraints, but it's still it's streamlined, it's sleek, it's beautiful, wonderfully. It, it's not the most faithful adaptation of Dracula. But I do think it's probably the best, to be fair. I think it really gets to the essence of the book more than exactly, most. Exactly, yeah. In yeah. terms of being, you, you can be faithful and then you, you can be sort of true to the book, I yeah. think. And they're, they're two different things. And this this is, I think Bram Stoker would have loved this film. Oh, yes, I think so. Yeah, I think this really sort of cuts to the heart of what the book's about. And what you were saying earlier about uh, Lee being sort of aristocratic and there's an arrogance to him and a sort of you know he oozes this sort of power this sort of sexual power and this sort of actual power i've talked about this so many times but one of my favorite scenes in the film is, is one of those that nobody talks about because it's just a throwaway scene but it's beautiful it's perfect when he first meets harker in the castle and he takes his bags just lifts them up effortlessly walks up the stairs two steps at a time while harker scurries after him one step at a time is this this guy is so powerful and so confident about himself so confident in his undead body that he just strides manfully up the stairs leaving this poor mere mortal scurrying in his wake it's a wonderful shot really clever stuff yeah of course audiences at the time would, would have marveled at that because they'd have realized this is the same actor who we saw last year playing yeah. frankenstein's That's monster right. and as as we described in our, our frankenstein podcast his his he gives this great sort of mind performance of a monster who's sort of learning how to live again and learning how to use his limbs and here's the, the complete opposite mm. of that yeah. from the same guy yeah it shows it shows his extraordinary range doesn't it yeah 
You know, when we get a full reuniting of, of cast and crew on this, practically, you've got Terence Fisher in the director's chair, you've got uh, Jimmy Sanks, the screenwriting as well, and you've got Peter Cushing and, and Lee as the uh, as the antagonist and protagonist again, you know, um, but in a very different world. <laughs> it was like this little family unit that they got going on at Bray at the time. And I think that's a huge part of the success of these films that they got this little family unit, which was running like clockwork. They all knew each other. I mean, after, after just one film, they all knew how each other worked. And that, that shows in all those early Hammer films. It sort of cheapens it to say that it was like a production line because that makes it sound very mechanical, but it kind of was. They just came in with a script and they just did it. And it was so ruthlessly efficient. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, they cranked these things out, but they did it in so much style. I think it's one of those things where they create such an atmosphere of being able to do these confidently and quickly that it allows yeah. things like Christopher Lee striding up the stairs two steps at a time. Yeah. Something like that might have been missed in a more sort of yes. like un- unsure production, but they're so confident the crew's going to think about those things. I mean, I don't know who came up with Was it in the script? I don't know. Was it Fisher? Was it Lee? I don't know, but you kind of get the impression that the the atmosphere on the set was such that someone likely could say, let's try this. And Fisher would go, yeah, all right. I trust you. You know, you've done well. You did, you did really well in the last film. I now trust you. And that you see that developing as, as the, you know, the early hammers go along, you see this kind of slightly experimenting and you kind of wonder how much the actors and the director put into the scripts when they were actually on the set, you know, was there a little bit of leeway perhaps? Maybe, maybe. Um, I, I was think, thinking about um, people that are making horror films in England today, and a lot of it, as we know, is very, very low budget or even no budget production. It's basically people going out at weekends and making films with their mates. Mm. But Hammer are almost a template for that. It, it, yeah. They are. It's, it's, it's a place where people make making films with their friends, you know. But with 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 budgets and with the opportunity to release them on on the cinema course, circuit, yeah. which which today's filmmakers don't have, but yeah, the 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 sort of spirit was identical, I'm sure. And that's why that's when you can make a really good film really quickly is when you're all pulling in the right direction and everybody sort of believes in each other. And I think Hammer fostered that so well, very very quickly, right at the very beginning. So what's the standout in this film? Obviously, Lee is magnetic in the role. But again, Cushing brings... Cushing is amazing. I mean, I, I, I'm slightly biased here. He's my favourite actor of all time. But he's... So, you know, he, he was him that came up with that ending. Mm. That, you know, the leaping across the table and tearing down. Because, you know, he famously said he felt like he was just a, a crucifix salesman. Mm-hmm. You know, that he, he was just going to whip out a crucifix and do, do his whole shtick again. He said, you know, why can't I just run across the table and pull the curtains down? So, you know, he brings a dynamism to Van Helsing that we'd never seen. We, we mentioned when we did our David Lean podcast recently that the, the, the set of great expectations is is not dissimilar to, to, yeah. to that room and, and all hinges on a pair of curtains being pulled and the sunlight sort of streaming through the dust. Indeed, and yes. I, I wonder if Peter had got that in mind when um, uh, when, 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 when sort of looking at the set at, uh, at Bray and thinking, yeah, yeah. Can, can we do this? Well, Cushing was really famous, wasn't he, for, for his... And he was... Uh, you notice props Peter or something he, yes, he was yeah, really sort of Peter. famous for knowing where every prop was on the set and if you see the annotated uh, copies of his scripts he's actually got notes you yeah. know pen over here you know he's a cup over there and, and he gets to he, he gets to use some wonderful ones here as well like there's the sort of old-fashioned recording device which of course, um, 
the throwback to the novel, of course, where you were saying earlier that, you know, they, 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 there were phonogram recordings in there. Yeah. So that's a little yeah. sort of throwback to that. So yeah. Well, pe- pe- people forget about the novel that it was set in the modern day. Of course it was. It was, yeah. it was, it was set at the time that's it right. was written. Yeah. We see it as a period piece. But it, it never was. No, it was always meant to be very, it was a bit like Sherlock Holmes. They were always meant to yeah. be very, very modern pieces, but they've just become sort of cosy period pieces for us now. So, uh, Peter Cushing, obviously, he's, he, it adds an air of confidence knowing all those props oh, yeah. where they are. It just it exudes through his acting style of utilising the props in, in playing confident characters. It's fascinating. If, if people listening haven't noticed this before, go and watch some Peter Cushing films and watch him working the props. It's absolutely fascinating. It's never distracting because it's, it feels so natural. He feels like the sort of thing people would do. But he's always doing something. He's always fiddling with something or picking something up or putting it in his pocket or taking it out of his pocket. And he just adds that. Yes, like you said, there's sort of like he's got the confidence to do that, you know, because yeah, he, wow. he he understands his character really, really well. And that's one of the things I absolutely love about his performances. Sure. My my favorite scenes with him in the film are not the ones where he's confronting Dracula or the ones where he's talking to the members of the, the household and explaining things to them. They're the ones where he's engaging with the, the child star, uh, yes. Yanina Faye. He's so good with her yeah. and really takes his time to give her a bit of screen time as well. And um, I, I, I just love those scenes. And, and, you know, when you look at it, he doesn't have a lot of screen time with Lee. But when they do come together, it's just... It, it's like alchemy, isn't it? I mean, it's just something about the two of them together in the same frame. There's just something, even now, you know, I'm I'm an knackered old man of 59 and I still get a little buzz when I see the two of them in the same frame on a film after all these decades of watching them, you know? Absolutely staggering performances. It's an interesting thing. You talk about, like, screen time, shared screen time. Just after, after obviously, with the Frankenstein one a few, a few months, like last month, and... Cushing is pretty much front and centre for most of that franchise. He's on the screen the most. In yeah. this franchise, it's a complete different. Lee's barely in the franchise. His own franchise. He's screen time wise. He's barely in it. Well, I think this was a bit of a bone of contention for him at times, wasn't it? He often sort of said, you know, they've given me like three words in the entire film. But, and yeah, you know, a lot of fans I know are unhappy about the fact that he doesn't appear a lot in the films. In some ways, I kind of like it. There's that kind of sort of presence in the background this evil that's there in the background stalking the film and he's when he does appear he's he's just magnificent i think if you put him in too much he might have just worn off a little bit it's just when you finally do see him it's a real chill down the spine you know it's just wonderful just in 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 the first film for example his few appearances you know he gets more appearances here than in all the other films but You'll suddenly get that moment where he suddenly appears in the doorway when um, the bride is trying to attack Harker. And it's such a shock because we'd almost kind of forgotten he was in it for a minute because we were so concentrating on Harker and the bride and we hadn't seen Dracula for a little while. And then suddenly he's in the doorway, blood all over his lips and dripping from his fangs and snarling. It's absolutely electrifying. Would it have worked if he'd been in it a lot more? I don't know. But, you know, by having him skulking around the edges that's that's the dracula i like you know he's he's skulking around the edges just doing unspeakable things yeah i mean he's the bad guy i mean there's the bad guy 1950s 60s yeah you don't get movies about about bad guys and they are the bad guys so there's no reason why he should be front and center you know there was always some i think we mentioned this in the podcast about frankenstein that there was always some sort of ambiguity as whether frankenstein was really a villain 
Was he just a bit misguided? Was he nuts? Was he, you know, I don't know. There's never any doubt about Dracula. Dracula is an evil so-and-so from the very first film right through to the very last. You know, there's no messing about with that. He's... He's horrible. None of these sort of, you know, sparkly vampire stuff, you know, you know, falling in love and all the rest of it and sort of pursuing people and pursuing lost loves across time. This man's a monster. He's a parasite and it's brilliant. You know, more like that, please. Yeah, I mean, it, it, just interesting to talk about, about future vampire movies. How, we, how big of an influence do you think on modern vampire movies this has had? Because it's, it's very much obviously a period setting, or now is a period setting, but it's got like gothic tradition that it's, it's drawing upon and you don't see much of that in modern horror films now sadly not no I'd, I'd like to see more gothic i think in modern films but of course it's expensive or relatively expensive to do gothic you know you need to do costumes and sets and all the rest of it so whether it's still an influence on you know sort of current filmmakers doing vampire films i don't know it's a difficult one to answer that because yeah. they all seem to be very contemporary sets yeah, I, I, I think the one one indication of that in the 21st century has been the return of Hammer films yeah. in, in, in name at least. And the handful of films that we've had, there's been nothing like that no. family unit. There's been nothing like the conveyor belt. We're lucky to get a film once every three or four years. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, We've had this handful of films since about 2008. And I think when, when it was announced that Hammer were coming back, the fans were all obviously very, very excited. And I think a lot of them were anticipating a new wave of gothic mm. and it simply never, never happened. happened no well you know they've kept up the vampire thing you know they did let me in and you know yeah and yeah. that's great but you know they've, they've sort of moved with the times i don't and, know and even even beyond the rave is a vampire movie. of course it, well well yeah the less yeah. said about that the better but yeah it is a vampire movie yeah but um yeah it just seems like gothic has fallen out of fashion I'd, I'd hope that you know the sort of love it or loathe it sort of gatis and moffat um dracula that that's at least two-thirds gothic I kind of hope that that might have triggered a few copycats, but it hasn't. Sadly, it's still very. Uh, no, all, all that all that seemed to happen, all that seemed to happen with that was that the, the third part was set in in modern dress, yeah. and all people like us and the people we know all sort of complained about it. And and I, I didn't mind like the first two episodes. Yeah. The last one, yeah. ah, not another modern day vampire film. You know, yeah. come on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's tricky to have to, I mean, to put it. I mean, even though Hammer have got that history and that tradition, it's you're not going to reinvent anything. No. But when 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 did Hammer actually launch this this wave of Gothic? You know, 1956, 57. Mm-hmm. Where what's happening in the rest of the world is the teenagers being born. You know, everyone's interested in Elvis Presley yeah. and Little Richard, yeah. and and um and and the space race is 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 sort of building up and and just sort of in its early stages. And there's all kinds of exciting things going on going on in the world. And so Hammer somehow managed to launch this series of um, adaptations of sort of old properties and old novels and old treatments and yet make it fit in with all that excitement that's going on elsewhere in the world um, that that seems to be changing the world, you know. And so I I, I think that's a sign it can be done again. It is slightly odd, isn't it, that they sort of had their earlier successes with the very, then very contemporary Quatermass films. Hmm. And you kind of felt like that was probably the way they were going to go forward. And then suddenly out of the blue, they do Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula, virtually back to back. And... Yeah, like you say, it just came out of nowhere. It didn't seem yeah. to fit with the 
to use that word, the zeitgeist. It didn't seem to fit, did it? You know, the world no, was no. changing, and yet here were Hammer sort of taking us back to an older tradition. Yeah, and, and the whole path changes then for the next 15 years or so for the company. And and uh, again, right in the middle of the swinging 60s, they're yeah. still doing it. They're still, they're still at it, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and so much so to the point where, where they're actually... They're actually parodied by Roman Polanski, by the Carry On team, <laughs> by yeah. by by all the people. Indeed. You know? But I think I think the original nineteen, the original handful, of the late fifties, early sixties, they even though they were adaptations of classic texts and they were gothic tradition and and drawing on that Grand Grignol kind of um, history. They were bloody and violent <laughs> for the time that that was cutting edge and was fresh and wasn't. That was I, I think, yeah. I think that, that, that was, was the rocker. That was the rock and roll. That was the rocker. And the sex, of course, you know, I mean, to our eyes, it looks very, very tame indeed. But, you know, imagine a 1958 audience going in to see Dracula and seeing the bride. You know, she was showing off a lot more than you expected from a, a you know, a young lady in a film at that time. And she was, you know, she was she was bite or trying to bite a young man. You know, this was very sexy stuff that had never been seen in, in sort of British horror, certainly at that point. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was part of it. They, they, all those elements, I, I'm sure the, the younger audiences absolutely lapped that stuff up. This was great. This was stuff that, you know, mum and dad would have heard of Dracula and Frankenstein. And then he said, oh, yeah, go and see Dracula and Frankenstein. When everybody turned up, there was like, hang on a minute. This isn't the Dracula and Frankenstein I remember. There's eyeballs everywhere and there's fangs and blood. This is, And so, you know, the kids would have loved that because it's like how oh, stitched up mum and dad, isn't it? You know, so you can see where they, they were quite canny with that. I think they sort of managed to sort of put one foot in both camps. You know, it's very clever. They were very canny people, people behind Hammer. They knew what they were doing. And, and they had a massive success yeah. to follow on that. You know, they, they, they knew what they were doing. They had a massive success and then waited eight years <laughs> before they brought Christopher Lee back to the role of Dracula. Um, they didn't always know what they were doing. OK, I'll take it back. They didn't always know what they were doing. <laughs> Hammer became bigger than its stars. And that was a key to their success, you know, that they could chop and change things about a little bit because it was the Hammer name that really made them. And so when when they did the follow-up to Dracula, it wasn't a Dracula film, despite the title. It was a Van Helsing film. And so, you know, Brides of Dracula in 1960, it was... It was Van Helsing. Dracula's not in it at all. You know, you see him very briefly in a sort of rehash of the the, um, ending scene from Dracula. And then we're off onto one of his acolytes, which... It's not clear at this stage now whether that was a conscious decision to get rid of Lee or whether Lee said, no, I'm not going to do any more drag. Nobody really knows at this stage. It could be it could be any number of reasons, really. Maybe maybe Jimmy Sangster just had no idea how to bring how him to bring back. Him back. I mean, maybe. I mean, at that time, he's like, were people even aware that you could bring a vampire back to life? You know, he was probably one of those things they thought, oh, well, he's dead now. He's never yeah. come back before in other films. So... How do we bring him back? And you know, so yeah, it was they went off and did something completely different, just taking the Dracula name in vain. I mean, it does become a part of, a, of the franchise. Like, how are they going to bring him back next? You know, for each successive film, what's the resurrection scene going to be like? It's like we've seen that since with Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger, yes. and, and yeah. in, right up right up to date in film series today. Yeah. You know? But but yeah, 
I think Hammer were, were one of the people, one of one of the sort of uh, companies that, that really sort of established that sort of tradition in horror that, that you could have a franchise and you could bring your dead characters into another film, you know. But Brides of Dracula is interesting as a little bridge because as it, it seems to be a, a bit of a stopgap in a sense when we look at it um, from, from today's perspective. But um, it's also probably the best of the series. Oh, yeah, yeah. One of Hammer's absolute finest films. It's, it's magnificent. Yeah, yeah. One of the most modern in its modern sensibilities as well, bizarre. It is, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's one. It's the one I think that you could probably show to a younger audience first, you know, that they, they, they probably get into it a little bit easier perhaps. And it's dated less than some of the later films in the series, which we'll come to in a moment, some of which now look positively archaic. But this one looks, like you say, very, very modern. There is there is a young cast in 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 the movie. You know the 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 the, the sort of stars of the film are are younger actors. Although I think David Peel looks he was older was about in, 40, in real life. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he but he but he, he fits yeah. in with that rock and roll teenage. So yeah. he's got that sort of appeal. You know, in 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 the way he's presented. Um, Cushing's there as this yeah. rock again. You know, as as Van Helsing, the sort of hub round which it all revolves. But the two best performances are from. People that again were in great yes. expectations, weirdly yeah. enough. Uh, Frida Jackson and Martita Hunt, who absolutely steal the film. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, poor old Peter Cushing signed up to be the star of the film, and everybody still to this day talks about those yeah, two. Yeah, you know? yeah. And Cushing is magnificent. Don't oh, get me is, wrong, Cushing is magnificent. But yeah, those those two. There's a couple of scenes. Everybody knows which scenes we're talking about, which just stick it out in the mind. I don't want to spoil anything for those who haven't seen it because I, I, I know there are going to be people out there who have never seen Brides of Dracula. Go watch it. You are in for such a treat. You really are. And then when you come back to listen to this afterwards, you'll think, now I know which two scenes he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah, I, I agree, Kevin. I, I think, you know, if anyone was to ask me, you know, which Hammer film should I watch first yeah. if I've never seen any? I'd say start, start somewhere near the top and start, start with, with Brides of Dracula yeah. because you get everything in that movie. Bar Christopher Lee, yes. you get everything in this film that, that, that is what Hammer is all about. They, they kind of hit a peak, didn't they? A very early peak with this. Like you yeah. say, the only, the only downside is that Lee's not in it. We can live with that because the rest yeah. of it. Is- but but again, he he he's there. He's there as that lurking presence you mentioned, isn't he? Yeah. We're, we're we're told at the start of the film. I think almost the very first line on the narration is Count Dracula he's is dead. dead. Yeah. But but there's this sense and the the the, the sort of intonation in the narrator's voice yeah. sort of suggests that maybe not for long, folks. You know. His influences are well to come right up to date. He's a little bit like a virus, isn't he? He's in the background, yeah, infecting yeah. everything. You know, even though he's not on screen, yeah. this and is sort of so, that's sort of what this film yeah. becomes about. Yeah, it, it, it's Dracula's influence and how it it, it he's almost more terrifying when, when he's he not there than when he yeah. is, be, be, because there is this sense that yeah, he's even though he's dead, even though we've seen him die in the previous film. There's still this sort of pervasive of influence out there, and it's it's infecting And you can't, can't help but yeah. think that he created one monster in Baron Meinster. How many more has he created? How many more Baron Meinsters are there out there in the sort of in the Hammerverse that we never yeah. actually saw? You know? That could have easily been the, the the route that this franchise took. It could um, it? again, yeah. Alar the Frankenstein films. Yeah. You know, uh, the Frankenstein films are about Baron Frankenstein, and we get a different monster in each one. Who's to say that the Dracula films yeah. might not have followed this line and had a different lead vampire in each one? 
Yeah. I mean, but of I, course he didn't because you know they got Christopher Lee back in the end. So uh, Cushing, Cushing is coming out, even though he, the movie is stolen away from him by what people have been talking about. <laughs> Cushing is great, and there's a handful of things in this movie that are really unique in the series. I think the the, the obviously I'm, I'm going to go into spoiler territory because I don't care. Um, but <laughs> we got we got the scene where he gets where he actually gets bitten. Yeah. And he cauterizes yeah. the wound with the with yeah. the branding iron and uses the holy that's, water. That's remarkable. Yeah. We talked on the Frankenstein podcast, and it's a regular discussion among Frankenstein fans about can you call is is the monster called Frankenstein <laughs> or, or not? Yeah. And that's a whole other debate. This sort of this sort of leans into that sort of territory because suddenly Van Helsing's a vampire. Yes. Yeah. For a few he becomes the mon- he becomes a very yeah, monster he's yeah. been trying to find. And although you know, I'm I'm never quite sure of the the, the biology of cauterizing a vampire wound. That doesn't matter. It's the performance. <laughs> he sells it so oh, beautifully. There's a look of panic in his eyes at first when he realizes what's happened, and then this sort of this steely sort of determination that Cushing did so well when he, he decides this is what he's going to do, and he sells the agony of that. It's, it's an unbearable scene. It's actually really difficult to sit through because it's really, really well done. It is. What, what do we think about Van Helsing in terms of uh, comparison with Frankenstein? Because we talked about Baron Frankenstein as being this very sort of ambiguous character who is cold, mm. ruthless and evil, but helps helps the homeless and helps the yes. poor and, and has has this sort of dual life going on. Now, Van Helsing's almost like that in that in, in the, he's... He's, he's the opposite of Frankenstein, but he's very similar to him in that he's totally for good. He's totally for wiping out evil. But in taking that to an absolute obsession, mm-hmm. beyond obsession, he sort of, there's there's a little hint of that sort of mental illness that we see in Baron Frankenstein. They they are, they're two sides of the same yes, coin. Yes, he's just as driven as Van Helsing, and in some ways he's probably almost as dangerous because, I mean, certainly to himself, you know, he puts himself on the line, particularly in this film, far more than, you know, he really should have done. But yeah, I think he's obsession, that is the word. I think both of those characters were obsessed with something. And, you know, Frankenstein's obsession was a little bit more nihilistic and a little bit more sort of self-centred. It was all about him and all about, you know. I think Van Helsing is obsessed but genuinely believes that he's doing good that he's yeah. fighting the good fight. But, but then does, doesn't Frankenstein... Doesn't Frankenstein think that? Yes, he probably does. I think it's more obvious to our eyes that Van Helsing is fighting the good fight than it is yeah. with Frankenstein. I think we can look at Frankenstein and think, well, you may think you are, mate, but <laughs> seriously, you're not. But I think with Van Helsing, he's much more of a, much more of a clear-cut character. He's yeah, definitely yeah. the hero of the yeah, films yeah. And that he's, he's in. And he's on, he's on our side, he whereas is. Baron Frankenstein isn't. Yes. But, but yeah, there's, there's, there's not a lot of space between... No, them. no, exactly. No, they, 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 too, they are very much two sides of the same coin, to coin a cliche. I think they are, but I, I do think that the, 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 the difference is the power, is what power they wield. And I think Frankenstein yeah. wields the power, whereas Van Helsing is fighting the power, he's trying to... Yes drag a mere mortal back up to that level so up to that level where where the power is and i think that's the that's the, the, the subtle differences and i think that's why that's maybe as the series goes on he becomes he, he's less powerful in himself because you know it's just not as maybe not as- maybe what we needed maybe what we needed here and how they would have done it i don't know is a van helsing versus frankenstein movie oh Oh, in an alternate universe, in an alternate universe that exists, and I'd have been first in the queue for that. 
<laughs> you, you can see the poster now. Yeah. We've talked about one of the films that doesn't include <laughs> Dracula quite a long time. Now. I think uh, just, just a little <laughs> note on the Lur in this film as well, because she um, does what pretty much no other uh, heroine in any of the Van Dracula films does, actually does something. You know, she actually yes. <laughs> has agency in her own saviour, you know, whereas the rest of them tend to be saved or bitten. So... Yeah. But let's let's move on to Dracula, Prince of Darkness, when, which is the return of Christopher Lee, and they and what a return, what a great resurrection scene! Yeah, fantastic resurrection scene. Yeah, um, when when Eli Roth made Hostel in two thousand and five, and a lot of a lot of traditional horror fans didn't like it and said, "Oh, we don't like this." It was branded under this this phrase "torture porn," wasn't it? Yeah. And I think it was Quentin Tarantino, Eli's great friend and, and mentor, who who pointed out it's it's basically got the plot of a, of a Hammer Dracula movie, and and I think this is very close to that, um, where you've, you've got this setup where four people go on holiday. They they sort of wander into the wrong place yep. and they they get tortured and killed and, yes. and that's that's the plot of Dracula Prince of Darkness <laughs> and it's the plot of Hostel. I'd never thought of that, but that's really good. I'd never never considered that. I'm going to have to go away and think about that yeah, one. Yeah. But what 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 we get um, on top of that is is a film rooted in in Hammer Gothic and and it's it's a fine 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 follow up if if you had to have a follow up to Dracula mm. and again I'm I'm sure people in 1965 were complaining about sequels just as people do of today course, you know and and here's a sequel that comes along yeah. and destroys that argument because it's fantastic I'm I'm not quite as sold on it as a lot I know it's got a huge amount of fans and I have got into trouble in the past by not, not being entirely committed 100% to it I don't hate it I don't think it's a bad film I just think it's one of those films that really ha- is living in those twin shadows of Dracula and Bride of Dracula and yeah. yes comparisons are odious but in this case you can't really help it and it's a really really good film it's just not Dracula it's a bit like, you know, sort of when, when I talk to people about, you know, 2010 and I say, look, you know, it's the sequel to my favourite film, the greatest film ever made. And in that respect, it's an utter failure. On its own, it's actually quite a good film. But it's just living in this it's, it's incredibly dark shadow. And I find that a little bit with Prince of Darkness, that it's it kind of, it, it, it just wasn't Dracula. And I wanted it to be Dracula. I wanted okay. to have that same feeling that I had when I saw Dracula. Dracula doesn't even come on screen until over halfway through yes. it. Yeah. But, but I, I think that first half of the movie is terrific. I think the scene setting is great. We really get to know the four characters. Yeah. Um, we we meet uh, Andrew Keir as the wonderful uh, yes. Father Sandor. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the, the lovely scene. Um, Barbara Shelley's performance is terrific all the way through because she actually she actually changes and how this yes. has this weird sort of enforced character arc, you know. And and when she's very prim and proper early in the movie, there's this wonderful moment where Andrew Keir comes into the tavern. Where, where they're all sort of resting and drinking. And, and he's, he's this sort of religious figure, but you can tell he's also a bit rough and ready as well, and he's prepared to go out and, and, and fight. In the absence of Van Helsing, he's, prepared, he's the guy who's going to go out and fight the evil. And, and he sort of comes in and immediately lifts up his, his cassock or whatever it is he's wearing and starts warming his arse <laughs> by the fireplace. Yeah. And the look on Barbara Shelley's face in yes. the background yeah. is, is sort of nose in the air, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, uh, 
Uh, sort of absolutely aghast terribly and appalled English, at what you see. It's a terribly English and, response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so I think there's a lot of things like yeah. that in the first half of the movie that really do help to set the tone and set the characters. And I, again, as, 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 as we've said previously, the fact that Dracula mm. isn't there... Doesn't really. No, no, not at all. No, no. And you know, you're talking about Barbara Shelley. I mean, you know, we 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 really need to wax lyrical for several days about Barbara Shelley and this performance in particular, which is for me the single best thing about this film. As I'm speaking, I have the still in front of me that I used in my review of her being held by the monks, and she's gone from this prim, very proper, very English English young lady into this feral, snarling monster. All of it under the curse of this this monster that is lurking around the background of the film. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we, we actually see the sort of the horror that Dracula brings to the world through her more than we yeah. see through him. And, it, and it's through her change. That's right. You know, because, yeah. because we've got to know this, this incredibly... This, uh, she's sort of an English rose yeah. character, but she's also a sort of school. That's right, a little bit uptight. Well. Yeah, very, very straight. Yeah. And, and and we've got Susan Farmer along for the ride, who's a, who's a much more frivolous, yeah, yeah. much more sort of yeah. fun character. And and they're 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 sort of brought together because they're married to to two brothers. That's right. Yeah. And you you do get the sense that they might not even like each other all that much, sure. although that's never sure. really played on. Um, um. And then and then suddenly Barbara turns into this wild animal. And her, her movements in yeah. the, the big scene where we see her as a vampire about to be staked, the way she moves in that scene, the physicality of it, is, is better than Christopher Lee. Oh, I yeah. Think. I, I, I mean, Lee, Lee, of course, does it across a series of, of course. films. She has this sort of two-minute showcase. Yeah. I, I, I think it, she's she's the great screen vampire there. Um, also, of course, what, what we get is it's a bit difficult to say this because of the tightness of mm. the camera angle, but I, I, I think that we get a scene with Barbara Shelley that anticipates the famous moment of the boy at the window in, in Salem's Lot uh, 15 years later. Ah. Um, because she appears at Susan Farmer's yes. window while Susan Farmer's in bed, and I, I don't think Susan Farmer's sleeping on the ground. Floor, I don't think she. she. I think you're right. I think she's About upstairs. It. Yeah. And, and no, nobody's ever really commented That's on that. Really I'm watching subtle. the film again recently, yeah. I, I thought, yeah, wow. Bar- Barbara's actually flying. She's flying here, yeah. I think. That's, yeah, I'm yeah. going to go back and watch it. And you've, you've managed to persuade yeah, me yeah. to go back and watch Dracula Prince of Darn as well. Done well, <laughs> fantastic. My work here is done. And of course, you know, you, you were saying about how prim and proper she was and how Suzanne Farmer is, is much more of a sort of frivolous, much more happy-go-lucky character. So, of course, Dracula wasn't interested in her. Of course not, yeah. He, yeah. Wanted, the, he wanted the uptight, he wanted the sexually repressed one because yeah, yeah. he wanted Co- to corrupting, release that. Corrupting somebody who's yeah. already halfway there isn't any fun. That's no it? fun at all, is it? Yeah. No, so he, he wanted the one who was going to be the hardest to turn, the hardest to convert into his, you know, his monster. And so, of course, he goes for the one that's, yeah, and she's, she's very sexually repressed at the beginning, and yes. then it all comes out. And, you know, the, 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 we might argue that, you know, yeah, they've unleashed this, you know, sort of feminine sexuality, and it's highly destructive, and there's a whole sort of, you know, there's a whole podcast to be gone into there, but I think they do it incredibly well with this. You know, that this is what Dracula was after. He was after the corruption of the most innocent of them all. 
Yeah, yeah. And of course, we, we get the famous scene from Stoker where when, when he finally does confront Susan Farmer yeah. and sort of try to lure her yeah. in, into his fold, um, the famous scene of Dracula cutting his own chest right, open yeah. so that she can she can drink yeah. from it. And, and they are interrupted, luckily, but yeah. uh, or unluckily, depending on what you want from the film. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a chance to, to shoehorn a little bit of Stoker in, which must have pleased, pleased Lee. Um, oh, yeah. there, there's, there's a couple of male performances in the film that I think are extraordinary. Thorley, our old pal Thorley Walters from, from a couple of the Frankensteins. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, he's occasionally accused of being a little bit of a bumbling sort of Nigel Bruce type type figure, and he often is in films. I, I think his Renfield-like character in this film is extraordinary yes. because he, he, does, he does that bumbling routine. Yeah, but his, character, his character's doing it. Um, as as a means to an end, he's pre, he's he's pretending yeah. to be a bumbling old fool right. to get what he wants. I, I think I think it's a brilliant take on on his his um, his sort of cliched persona. Yes. You know, yeah. um, um, the 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 key male performance for me though is Francis Matthews, who gets all sorts of business here. Um, he, he does comedy. There's the, there's this there's this dialogue about this ex boyfriend of of his wife's Horace Peabody, <laughs> and they have this wonderful little comic routine there but but then there's the great scene where he he discovers his his brother's body and it's brilliantly handled by terence fisher because it's in this it's, it's not in a coffin it's in this almost like this shoebox sized um uh almost like a little treasure chest thing and we're thinking surely there can't be a human yeah. body in there and francis matthews does the really stupid thing and opens yeah. it to have a look and, and we don't see it but we, we see what, what yeah. he sees. We see the look yeah. on his face and the performance. The range he gives in this movie is is just just so so impressive. And again, I've I've, I've never seen him perform like that in a film or a TV show. Before. Well, I think outside Hammer Circles, he's actually very underrated as an actor. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. quite the fan, but you never see him get spoken about outside of Hammer no, Circles. No. You never think, see him get the love that he deserves. Maybe Jerry Anderson Circles. Yeah, perhaps. yeah. He's he's seen as being Mr. Suave normally. Yeah. He's one of those guys yeah. who looks good. In, sure. He'd have made a good James Bond, yeah. maybe. You know, he looks good in a tuxedo yeah, and a yeah. bow tie and with a with a glass of champagne. Yeah. But here, he's. I think Fisher and the script really, really give him something yeah. to, to, to really, if you'll pardon the pun, get his teeth into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not convinced, Daryl. I'll be honest. I'm not convinced. I think he's very good, but I think the script gives him stupid things to do, and the script in the first half has things that, for me, make make me feel like they're idiots. Like, for instance, opening the coffin there. You don't do it, don't do it. You know, yeah. the, the coach arrives driven by nobody. The coach arrives driven by nobody with an infernal yeah. sort of like horse at the front, and they all just climb in. That's like uh, Yeah, but it's 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 to, to make the comparison again though, Adam, it's what the characters in hostel do. It's these these films are saying, yes. Brits abroad or young Americans abroad do do dumb things. And to be you know, honest, and, and should have done better by Hostel at least, you know. But it's a commonplace, isn't it, in horror films? You know, he, well, that's what you know, if people about. didn't go back for the cat, I mean, you know, the horror films would work. You know, people are always doing yeah. dumb things in horror films. And it's whether or not the writer and director can make you suspends that little bit of disbelief and say, oh, all right, yeah, they're, they're being idiots. No one goes back into the Amityville house just because the dog's in there. You know, that you get out of there the minute the first creepy thing happens and you flee and you leave the dog behind. But no, we're going to go back because, you know, a little bit of added tension or the rest of it. If you can buy that, if they can sell it to you, then it works. A lot of, I always found a lot of the, the slasher movies 
I was sort of sitting there screaming at the at the screen, you know, for God's sake, you bloody morons! What are you doing? Just just go, leave now! You've got a chance, just leave, you know. But it's, it's just a commonplace in horror films. I think characters have to do things that, in real life, we would not do at all. No, I agree. But I think with brides, following brides and following Dracula, where there's a lot less of that. Yeah. Characters doing stupid things because the plot needs yes. them to do a stupid thing. I totally agree with you. I mean, I think there is that problem in there, but I think, you know, it's worth pointing out that, you know, other horror films were doing it at the time. They did it before. They'll do it in the future. You know, yeah, there, yeah. there will always be at least one idiot in every horror film who does something yeah. that just drives you mad. Talking about film franchises, what, what we get here, of course, is a... The, the the first revival of the Hammer Dracula, which is ex, an extraordinary sort of um, an, almost an anti-religious yeah. scene, you know, almost a sort of inverted cross-like scene. It's it, it's it's um, quite quite extraordinary, quite um, quite blasphemous in parts. Oh, yeah. And then of course, then of course, we get the, the the first new death of Dracula. Having revived him, Hammer then tell us, yeah, you. You can kill a vampire once, you can keep killing him. And these, these, these are the two things that we get that are new to this series. In this, And that, I think, was part of the attraction for, for fans at the time, even now, perhaps, that how are they going to do it? How are they going to bring him back? They, they, they killed him at the last one. He went under the water, under the ice. He's dead. Well, he's yeah. dead. How do we get him back from here? So people, I think, went to the next film partly thinking... How are we going to see him come back? How are they going to do that? And across the series, the continuity is actually rather good, isn't it? They 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 don't forget from film to film how they kill. They don't, but don't don't try working out the dates. The dates will drive you completely (laughs) insane. But yeah, (laughs) they simply don't fit. Moving on to the next one, guys. Dracula has risen from the grave. Um, Is next, and um, yeah, another success, I think. Um, particularly box yeah. office. Well, I've, 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 I've just said, I've just said how how blasphemous the the resurrection of Dracula is in Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And again, go people that haven't seen it, go and find out for yeah. yourselves. You know, and I think the whole of Dracula has risen from the grave is is. It's very interesting in the way that it flips religion over, so that we've got an atheist hero yes. and, and we've got a priest as 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 Dracula's servant in That's this right. one. Yeah. So yeah. so, how, what am I saying about religion here? Yes, exactly. And you know, and again, it's what would you expect from Dracula other than to go after a priest? Yeah. I mean, that's going yeah. to be the- again. It's a it's a challenge again. It's- if he, if he can't get the, the town virgin, he's going to go for the priest, isn't he? Yeah. Because, you know, that, that's, that's what he is. You know, that's, yeah. if he can corrupt the local priest, that will strike terror into the hearts of the, the, the neighbourhood. Which, which in this yeah. film it does, of course, because fa- famously the shadow yes. of Dracula's castle falls across yeah. the church, which means no, nobody right. uses it, which, which also means that, that it, there's right at the start of the film, there's, there's a big surprise. And again, we won't reveal it, but there's a big surprise in the church yes. bell. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't mentioned yet that this was actually a new director. This was Freddie Francis. Terence Fisher yes, had moved yeah. on to other things. And now we've got Freddie Francis, who was, of course, a cinematographer, an absolutely brilliant cinematographer, possibly the best this country has ever produced. And this was, this was his, you know, his, his Dracula film. And um, he, he has a habit of bringing with him from the innocence. He brought some um, colour filters. 
which I find slightly distracting after a while because every time Dracula appears or every time something spooky is about to happen, you get this kind of red rimmed sort of thing. Yeah, there's this halo around the Yeah, you think, oh, something spooky is going to happen. It kind of robs it a little bit of the suspense, I find. But when you first see them, they're very effective. When you first see Dracula framed in that, it adds a real sort of frisson to it. Yeah. Um, you know, Francis, master cinematographer, the lighting in this film is absolutely unparalleled you know it's like they had he had his director of photography but i'm pretty sure he was behind the camera on the lights most of the time sort of saying no don't do that do this do this and who was going to argue with freddie francis you know yeah yeah now i don't know how far to go with with, you know whether we're sort of skirting round spoilers or not but there's (laughs) there's a notorious scene involving dracula being staked in this movie yes and i i love it i have Um, no problems with it yeah yeah a consensus seems to there doesn't seem to be a consensus on it I think fans are either in one camp or the other and I think I think if you accept this film as one that is constantly having a dig at, at religion yes. and, and religious hypocrisy yeah. that scene we, again without going into detail this scene really really works and it really makes yeah, sense and yeah. it's a it's a it's a wonderful bit i mean they hammer hammer occasionally as we've said would take bits from from stoker and try and insert those into the films um but this seems to be a, a completely original bit of vampire lore and and i think it's fantastic because you know if it's all made up they were allowed to add new things to it you know that that was entirely within their right. We may not like it, but it was entirely within their right to do it. And I think, it, like you say, I think it works really well within the context of the religious aspects of the yeah. of the story. Yeah, and of course, you know, it, it, there's a magnificent ending, yet another marvelous climax of it, which we can't discuss because it's. Yeah, you know, yeah. well, I don't think is, it's much again, of a spoiler yeah. to say that Dracula dies, but it's yeah, you know, I yeah. think we have sort of hinted yeah. at that. So again, quite the, the 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 activity of the climax. Yeah sort of um, has its cake and eats it for this film because having bashed religion from from minute one, you know, we we suddenly end with the most (laughs) religious ending that you can possibly get. It's completely um, nuts, isn't it? And and, and James Bernard's score just just excels. I think it's the best Dracula music that he ever wrote is the is is the finale to to Dracula. You could be right, yes. You could well be right. Yeah, fantastic. So we should move on to the next one. We keep ploughing through Dracula movies here now, but we'll move on to Taste the Blood of Dracula. No, we get... Yeah, yeah. Ah. Is this a significant shift? This one, I think, belongs to that sort of... There was a run of films from sort of the very late 60s into the 70s in British horror, which pitched generation against generation. You can look at a whole load of British horror films at the time. They were mostly, to be fair, written by middle-class, middle-aged men who'd probably never met a young person, but they were, they were always about this struggle between the old guard and the new guard, and this is where Dracula joins in. This is about um, Dracula trying to take his revenge on the old guard through their children. And so you've got these sort of, you know, in 1969, there were an awful lot of, of, of people out there. And I, I say middle-aged people, they're probably only in their 30s. They were probably still quite young by today's standards, but who were terrified of what the young people were up to. You know, all this rock and roll and drugs and sex and God knows what else they were doing. You know, sort of Manson had happened by this time. It was all a very scary time to be looking at young people. And so in this film, they actually 
make them the monsters. Yeah, but Hammer's film. genius there is they yeah. is they is they disguise that by pitching it into Victorian times. Yeah, yeah. But but what that cleverly does is say, yeah, what happened then is happening, happening now, and we'll now. have the hundred yeah. years in the future. You know exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, and and yeah, so so what what we've got is is a set of young people who are corrupted by Dracula. In, in order to for, for Dracula to expose the hypocrisy yeah. of, of the Victorian upper middle class society, yeah. Yeah, where where exactly. we've got we've got these three guys in this little sort of sordid gang who were all sort of um, successful businessmen or successful community leaders, and every what is it the, the third Friday of every yes. month or yeah, whatever they like say that, they, yeah. they 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 go off to to sort of the equivalent of Soho or it might even be Soho yeah. you know they they sort of go to the big city and indulge themselves with with prostitutes and snakes and all kinds of. Uh, uh, alcoholic beverages and all kinds of uh, weird sinful things and then they go back home and they they um, they abuse their wives and beat their daughters on an entirely personal note i think if, if my failing memory serves me well enough i think this was the first hammer film i partially watched I remember staying my parents let me stay up to watch it and then they got to the bordello scene and it's like i think we ought to go to bed now and that was the end of that and it took me years to find out what happened i didn't even get to the point where dracula was in it yeah, yeah. i was so disappointed you know it's, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, and the three, the, the, the three, sort of, I don't, do we call them heroes, the anti-heroes, whatever? Again, it's, it, with a Hammer film, it's always so difficult to say, you know. Then, again, this moral ambiguity, these upright, you know, sort of members of the of the of society doing good things by the sounds of it. From what we can gather, they do good things. Yeah. And then they go and they're absolutely debauched and they're horrible and they they yeah. murder someone in panic. Yeah, they are. They're, 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 you know, in 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 their day to day lives, they seem to be working yes. for charity. Yeah. You know, they're doing the very the very similar sort of to, to the Frankenstein. Right. But like you say, it's all about know. hypocrisy, yeah. isn't it? It's all about exposing yeah. that Victorian yeah. hypocrisy that on the surface everybody was like, oh yeah, we're all very prim and proper, but underneath it, they were all just you know. They, they were all at it everywhere, you know, and that's well, that well, expo- well, and they, course, well, they don't they don't like their kids indulging that. They, in that of course same they behavior. don't. Of course yeah, they don't because yeah, they're yeah. hypocrites. Of course they don't. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so an element and, and, of um, sort of like the aristocracy and the working classes kind of seeping through. Yes. Yeah. With that, you know, yes, well, we, we, yes, they're doing good work, but ultimately, they're the aristocracy, so they're all corrupt as horrible as, as any other. And of course, they're, they're corrupted by someone who's even more aristocratic than they are, who then transforms yeah, yeah. into someone who's even more aristocratic than he is. You know, so, so there's so, sort of levels so of Dracula showing off his own hypocrisy That's there, right, you know? yeah. and, and he's 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 not even doing his own killing this time. He's no. getting he's getting the kids to do it for him. Exactly. You know, so the, it, there's this extraordinary mix in this film. You know, and and again, if if you, if you want if you want to judge hammer as as possibly even unwittingly um but we we've discussed this before you know how hammer did seem to to lean to the left politically you know yes. and and and, yeah. and and i think again taste the blood of dracula offers yet another example of that you know yeah. it's it's a film that is so anti sort of capitalist yeah. and exposing that that hypocrisy at, at that level of of, of of sort of business and society um and and yeah, it's got this weird sort of mix, as you say, where where in in order to combat that, you have to bring in 
the count. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, this must be very confusing for, you know, the kids who went to see it, you know, they, they were thinking, oh, yeah, you know, they've got all these young people, it's going to be cool. We, we can, we can, we can root for Martin Jarvis and, and, and Linda Hayden, but, but yeah. yeah, why is... Why is why is this guy with the title helping? Exactly, yeah. What's going and you know and, and Christopher Lee, you know, bless him, he gets even he gets even less dialogue than ever here. Most of which he's, he's mostly him going the first, the oh, yeah. second. It's, yeah. But it's, it's so, again, it's so commanding, isn't it? It's so sort of when he does appear, it's just like yeah. so like oh my well, he is, god, he's, it's he's, 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 he's still know. imperious and he's still yes. got that confidence you were yeah. talking about, even even when he's got nothing. That's right, yeah. Yeah, he still owns everything that's going on around him, even though he's just sort of standing there, really. You know, it's, yeah, another yeah, another yeah. magnificent performance. Again, the treatment of Dracula here, though, by Hammer, is that they we're, we're, we're 50 minutes into a 95-minute film before we see him. Before he turns Al, Al, yeah. Al are Dracula, yeah. Prince of Darkness. And, it, but it, and then, fair, then when we do, he's got nothing to do. So. To be fair, it's a brilliant reappearance. Oh, it's, exactly. the, the resurrection of this is one of my favourites. You know, the dust yeah. settling yeah. over and the crack of thunder in the background. It splits open, you know, and he's under well, there when, with the red eyes. Yeah. When you, when you paid for your ticket in 1970 to yeah. go and see this film, and you saw the title the blood yeah. of Dracula. I'm sure a few people sort of looked at that title and thought, what, what does it mean, taste yes. the blood of Dracula? What yeah. are we in for? But boy, boy, do you find out. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those outlandish titles where you think, oh, that's just a come on, isn't it? That's just a come on for the for the drive-in. But it actually happens in the film. Yeah, it's astonishing. Yeah, great stuff. We had, we had this at the start of 1970, and then we get, which is one of Kevin's favourite Dracula films, and then at the end of 1970, we get Scars of Dracula. See, that's why I kept talking, because I was trying to put this off, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we don't have to talk too bill. long about this. Well, box. it was a double bill with uh, the Frankenstein film that must not be named. And to be honest, they're, 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 they're good bedfellows. They're, they're absolutely, they are the pits in both series, to be honest. They're just yeah, dreadful, yeah. dreadful films. These are the film where... Dracula becomes something entirely different to what we'd seen before. He becomes a, a, a sadistic monster who's sort of driven into a sexual jealous rage at one point, you know. And it's like he uses a dagger to kill someone for God's sake. That's not Dracula's way. You know, it's, it's no, it's an awful film. They, you know, I, bless them, the supporting cast do what they can, but the characters are so wet. You just, you yeah. just don't give yeah. a damn about it, them. It, it, all, it all looks very cheap as well, doesn't it? You know, it looks, it looks as though it's been made hastily. And um, we, we've been talking about Dracula's. Uh, uh, minutes of screen time here. He, he he gets quite a few minutes of screen time in this one, but he actually gets less than a big, awful-looking um, joke shop rubber bat yeah. that, that flaps in on a string every ten minutes or so, and that actually gets more screen time, not only than Christopher Lee, than than more than just about any other member of the cast. <laughs> yeah, it, it must have had a better agent. Don't they mention the early sort of like Dracula movie, either Dracula or Brides of Dracula, about transfiguration into beasts is a don't believe everything you read in the newspapers and the books kind yes, of thing. Van, like, Van Helsing says yeah, that. Yeah, go back and remember yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> This throws continuity completely out the window because, you know, we, we pick up Dracula this time, nowhere near where we left him at the end of Taste. He's now in a coffin, in a room, high up in a tower, which hasn't got a door in it, which, you know, he's been staked, clearly, because he's, he's turned to dust. 
who the hell got up there? Who put him there? How did what? what? Right from the very start, you're sitting there scratching your head, yeah. thinking, "Well, who and killed then, him? And how and did then, they get into that that room?" There's this very arbitrary sort of resurrection as yes. well, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yes. Again, we won't spoil it for new no. viewers, but uh, actually, um, we can or, spoil any of this film because honestly, yeah, maybe don't see and actually it. make don't people go and watch it. it. But whatever you do, if you're going to start watching Dracula films, make this one the very, very last Hammer Dracula film you watch because uh, you'll thank us for that. Moving on rapidly, yeah, we get to 1972, and it's a seismic change. I guess, for these next two films, it was gone before. Dracula 1972 AD is the next film. Um, and, yeah, modern times. Yeah, there's there's an odd thing going on in vampire cinema at this time mm. where we, 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 we're used to, in cinema history, we're used to having single films and we're used to having franchises. There aren't many occasions where you get pairs of films coming out closely together. And yet there, there were several vampire movies that came out in twos around this time, 1970, 71, 72. There were two films based on the Dan Curtis Dark Shadows TV show. There were two Blackula movies. There were the two Night Stalker yeah. and Night Strangler films yeah. with the Darren McGavin. I think there are a couple of other examples as well. The Count Yorga well. York, uh, yeah. yeah. films, yeah. yeah, we had two of those. Yeah. Um, and here we are with the British um, example of that form. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, these films work as a pair, Dracula AD 72 and Satanic Rites. I'm here to tell you I will not hear a bad word about, about Dracula AD 1972. It is, having watched only part of Taste of Blood of Dracula, this, I'm fairly sure, was the first Hammer film I actually watched all the way through. And as a consequence, it has a very special place in my heart. I bloody love it, and I will fight anyone who tells me it's anything less than, than marvellous. It's No, I mean, it is absurd in so many ways but i mean it is so much fun we're, we're talking about the hammer timeline earlier on <laughs> or the dracula timeline at hammer and this this film really messes it, it up because it starts off starts off with the prologue in 1872 it then flashes forward which is wonderful it's oh, a great, great little great mini movie yeah yeah, yeah. Um, hammer would seem to be doing this a little bit in their films at the time because um uh which of, is it twins of evil or one one of the um one of the vampire films starts off with um, a, a little sort of 10-minute vignette at the start before the credits. Well, I think, you know, this is possibly the Bond influence, isn't it? Where they Vamp- vampire, had vampire, the, yeah, vampire yeah. Circus it is, yeah. It's yeah. Vampire Circus, of course um, it is, but, yeah. But talking of Bond influence, though, uh, Kevin, I, I think what, what, what Dracula AD 72 and Satanic Rites do here as a, as a pair, they're, they're within a franchise, but they stand as a pair on their own. And they, they, they sort of anticipate what happened with um, Casino Royale and right, Quantum of yes. Solace. Um, 35 years later Um, you know you're within you're within an established franchise but let's do this little pair that that, that sort of fit together as as, as one story and of course we see the return let's not let's not gloss over this we see the return of Peter Cushing he's not been in the films since uh, Brides of Dracula and now he's back as an older uh, descendant of Van Helsing I, I, I have to go with grandson I think because I think he'd be quite crotchety if he was his son but he's still very dynamic you know he's still you know, he's an older man now, but he's still, you know, still out there fighting the fight, you know. Again, these these two films are, again, a perfect example of what you expressed right at the start of the podcast, Kevin, that Dracula has very little to actually do, but just the fact that he's there is, is, is enough. Yeah. yeah. Reeks absolute havoc without leaving a church. Again, 
not well not not only not only has van helsing got a little helper in the form of his is 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 she his granddaughter again and we, we, this is so I mean, mixed up yeah. but but dracula's got help too yes although that johnny, johnny to, alucard that does lead to the silliest scene in the film where oh, yes. we, we we all know we we know that what alucard means we got it you know we we, we can work it out we're not stupid but yeah. Van Helsing has clearly lost a few brain cells over yeah, the generations yeah. and has to actually write it out on a piece of paper sort of and draw his lines. Yeah, so just in case anybody, any thicko in the audience had missed it, you know, it's like, oh, come on, you're better than that. Yeah. <laughs> just going back to the sort of like, you know, how, how they very much of their time. I think they're fascinating from that point of view. That they are very much of their time in a way that maybe the other Frank Dracula films are not of their time. You know, like the previous Dracula no, film no. had no real, you didn't get a swinging 60s kind of vibe, unless you was really looking at the subtext of these films. Yeah, you, that's it. You don't watch Brides of Dracula and think, oh, 1960, but you watch these and think, yeah, yeah 1973, 1970. man, yeah. And yeah. when I said earlier that Brides of Dracula has dated less than some of the later films, this now looks like, this looks positively archaic to modernise. You know, I... I I mean, I, I was, you know, I was only 10 when it came out, but I can still remember the times. I can still remember being, you know, I had the hair and the Afghan coat and all the rest of it, you know. And, um, but, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, some of my, my nieces or, you know, the younger people that I know, if they watch this film, they probably look at it the same way we would have looked at a film from the 1930s or 40s when we were watching films in the 70s and 80s. It would have been, like, so alien to everything we know. It's it- it's a, it's a world that Edgar Wright has, yes. has captured in his new yeah. film, I think. You know, he's, 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 he's really looked at those British horror movies and British yeah. psycho thrillers of that period from the mid-60s through to the early 70s that were set in this world of wimpy bars and coffee bars yeah. and discotheques yeah. and things like that. And, and, and his film, Last Night in Soho, is pitched sort of towards the start of that sure, period, yeah. but, it, but it's immersed in that world of British horror and very successfully too. But yeah, um, these, these these two Hammer films, I think, encapsulate yeah. that that style as as well as anything does, you know. And and in, interestingly, you know, we we've been talking about whether you know we were talking about Stoker and how how Dracula the novel isn't a period piece. Hammer going yeah. modern are now period pieces. They are, yes, they're, they're more period pieces than the period pieces. You know, they, they, because yeah, yeah. that's true of anything, isn't it? That you know, that anything that's set in period never really dates. Yeah, because yeah. you know, it's, but this, you know, it is it is a real time capsule of a of a period in British culture which probably never quite happened like this, but we'd we'd all kind of wish that it did. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd love to hang out with those guys. You know, they're all they're all a bit annoying, but I kind of like to hang out with them because they seem pretty cool. You know, and that. Okay. That'd be all right, you know, but yeah, yeah marvellous film. Yeah. I will not hear a bad word about it. You kind of get those alien films where it's like, yeah, that's that's harking back to a period that probably never existed, but it's nice to know that at least it exists on film. It's, it's cosy, isn't it? Yeah. It has its own cosiness now, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're talk we're talking about these films as a pair, but I I, I think we're, we're we're here in the 2020s recording this, and I think we need to single out satanic rights. Of Dracula because it's a, it's a plague movie. It is a plague movie. And yes. what's what's going what's going on with Dracula here? Because he's 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 planning to unleash plague on the entire planet, kill everyone, and, pre- pre- and pre- presumably yeah. causing his own suicide. In some ways, I kind of like that. It's almost like he's sort of been around for so long that he's just become weary of existence. And if he's going to go, 
he's going to take us all with him. Yeah. Because yeah, he's yeah. that evil. Yeah. You know, he I, can't I, just I sort of give in to Van Helsing and say, look, I've had enough, just stake me and, and do what you need to do to make sure I come back. Don't yeah. come back. He's going to take everybody with him because he's just so evil and nasty. Yeah, it's, it's the ultimate, uh, the ultimate sort of expression. Do you know how we know how evil he is in this film? He's a property developer. That's how evil he is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think it was David Perry in the Vampire Cinema said, you know, now, now, now we know what. Now we know what's happened to London's great white <laughs> elephant centre point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was Dracula all along. Yeah. Do we get a feeling that maybe there's the screenplays mirroring Christopher Lee's nihilism towards the role at this point? Maybe it's his last outing as as Dracula. Um, it's not obviously yeah. the nihilism doesn't get much more nihilistic I, than I, I, I think, ours, I think he, he must have been he must have been quite relieved seeing the script for this yeah. and thinking oh at, at last i i get to do no more yeah, you know exactly. and they're finally they're finally killing me off for good you know yeah but of course they didn't and uh who who would have put any money on of all the actors to replace christopher lee in the Hammer Dracula series, who would have put money on the Chinese actor Chan Shen? <laughs> yeah, I know. In 1974, yeah. there we are. There we are. Yes, he's he's now he's now uh, Dracula in Legend, Legend of the Seven Golden yeah, Vampires. Yeah. yeah. So so what's what's the what's the history of this one and the connection with Hong Kong then? So oh, before yeah. we get into that though, like Hammer have always had sort of like co-production deals for their films. Oh, of course. All their early films are American co-productions. You know, people don't realise that. They're actually American films, majority American films, because the money came from Columbia, Warner, you know, whoever had the money. And, of course, there there was the big thing we said about the Frankenstein makeup and Universal preventing the use of that until until they... Until it was a hit and they, right, okay, we're going to have some of this as well. The little little coda we've got to all this, of course, is... um, uh, a, a, a script that has been lying about for decades and recently revived yes. by your your good pal Kevin, uh, Mr. Jonathan Rigby. Yes, uh, tell 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 us a bit about the, the unquenchable thirst of Dracula. Well, there were there were several attempts, weren't there, to make a, a one last um, Dracula film? I mean, I think at one point, it, Carly Bride of. Dracula or something, Bride of something, which was going to be set in India. It was going to do for India what Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, they hoped, was going to do for the Far East, but it didn't. But no, there was um, was this other uh, script, The Unquenchable Thirst of Dracula, which is one of the all-time great horror movie titles. And, you know, somebody should just buy this script just to make the film so that we've got that, just so I can put it on my website and say, look, it exists. It's actually there, you know? But it has been produced. produced. It's been produced in sort of um, rehearsed readings, you know, where where, um, Jonathan and I think Mark Gatiss has done it as well, hasn't he? Was it not done as a radio? He did a radio thing, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. It was done as a nightmare. 90-minute radio play. That's yes, right, yeah. yeah. So they've sort of, you know, I mean, they, they, they know each other. They sort of, they go back years anyway, so they're, they're all into this sort of stuff. But, yeah, this script exists in the Hammer Archive up in uh, Leicester, isn't it, the university up there? Yes, yeah. And it was dragged out of um, mothballs, dusted down. And I'm ashamed to say I didn't actually get to see the performance, and I'm not quite sure why. Something must have been going on that night. But, um, yeah, it would have been... The next one in the series, Carly had sort of fallen by the wayside. I think by then, you know, the writing had been on the wall for Hammer for quite some time. It was it was all over. They they, they were struggling against, you know, these this new wave of American films, which were very modern, 
very up to date, very contemporary. And then The Exorcist came along and the world of horror changed completely overnight. Uh, to a lesser degree, Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. And it wasn't actually Van Helsing that saw him off. It was it was this resurgence of m- uh, modern American horror cinema and it unquenchable thirst. It was leather. It was leatherface. What done it? Yes, as the power of Christ compelled Dracula into an early grave. So, uh, so yes. Yeah, so sadly, unquenchable thirst never got made. Which you know, the, at that point, I think Hammer were just trying to get anything made. You know, they they got um, to the Devil of Daughter, which was somewhat belated. It was two years after Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Um, they had to go to Germany for the money for that, and there was the Lady Vanishes, and nothing until you know Hammer House of Horror. The market just wasn't there for another traditional Dracula film, sadly. Today, maybe, you know, maybe there's some entrepreneurial producer out there can buy the script and maybe there's enough nostalgia to make that film. Yeah, but... as, as, as we say again, Mark, Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat yeah. did their, their, their period Dracula yeah. last year. And uh, yeah, um, semi, semi-successful, I think, semi-successful. and well-received, yeah. well-received by a lot of fans. Yes. So maybe, maybe that... that that just showed that the conditions are right for a revival I of the Gothic. Would, but of Who course, knows? the pandemic sort of puts a stop to everything. So I'm hoping, you know, so come on, BBC, repeat it and let people look at it and get inspired by the first. Don't worry about the third episode. Just show the first two episodes again and let people get inspired by those and uh, see if we can get a, a Gothic revival going with the unquenchable thirst. I can't stop saying it. It's such a great type, the unquenchable is, thirst. Put some put some reverb on when I say this, unquenchable thirst of Dracula. I mean, what a marvellous title. <laughs> Very good. Well, there we come to the end of, of, of Dracula's journey. There's no more resurrections so far. Certainly not one with Christopher Lee playing the role. Um, but yes, thank you for joining us, uh, Kevin. Thank you, Daryl, once again. And thank you for listening. Um, We'll be back in another couple of weeks' time with another great podcast. Uh, Do check out our Facebook page. Do subscribe to our Patreon if you so wish, where we do extra podcasts on a monthly basis. And we will see you again in two weeks' time. Take care.